Hey guys, welcome to the Neglected Podcast. This podcast is not to change your mind, but to invite you into somebody else's narrative. This is a podcast to give a voice to the neglected. It is also an opportunity for all of us to engage. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Neglected Podcast. My name is Nick Schultz. You can hit me up at Schultzy Time. We are at For the Neglected here at City Church. Thanks for hosting. And like always, producer Quinn, what's going on, man? Thanks for being here. And we got a special guest today. His name is Glenn Paddock. What's up, man? How you doing, Nick? I'm doing all right. It is. It's good to see you in person and have this interview. Appreciate you coming on the podcast and share some things I think will be helpful to people about your life. And just a quick glimpse into our relationship, how this happened. Um, we've known each other almost since I moved down to Savannah about yeah. six years ago. And you, I think at the time you were still doing sure. what you're doing now, the Dream Campaign, you'll be talking about that. And I was working for one of the churches down here. And that's kind of how we got connected at first. But we never had any personal, you and I go out and spend no, time no. together. And I, you know, I wasn't because I didn't like you or anything. I was just like, I was doing stuff over here, you're doing stuff over there. And always knew what you and your wife were, were doing and was thought it was awesome. And But we'd cross paths here and there from sure. church events and stuff in the community. But it wasn't until about recently, the past couple years, especially this year, where seen a lot of you right and we are doing things together with the nonprofit I work for Excel and nonprofit you work for dream campaign because we do mentoring with young men right and now we're doing activities together where we're mentoring and, and building wood projects and other things um, together at locations and it's been awesome man and so I, I appreciate you and just a little bit of the story that I know about what you've told me and I'm excited that you again to share it now um, and I think it really lends into why you do what you're doing now and why I do it and um, just what a big impact you're making in the community and the lives of young men. So thank you. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to come on. I, I appreciate it. You're uh, welcome. And I really enjoy our uh, friendship that's being built through uh, just the, the collaboration that we're doing. Yeah, so, man. yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, it's good to to collaborate. You're right. And do things together, especially during this time when. Yeah. People are like, man, we don't know what to do, and we're bringing resources together, people together, and yeah. fighting the same same battles. So yeah. it's good stuff. So let's get into it and um, go with uh, your your childhood and life as little Glenn and where where you came from <laughs> and and where uh, you lived and your family dynamic and paint us that picture of what life was like for you, Ben. Sure, I grew up in uh, Shepherdstown, West Virginia. Um, my parents got divorced when I was pretty young. Uh, I think first grade, maybe. Uh, always watched my dad work really hard. He worked two jobs. He was a school teacher. He taught music. And then he worked at uh, a local uh, horse track as a teller taking bets at night. Oh, interesting. <laughs> and then my mom was uh, a real estate agent. And she did that for you know, lots of years. Uh, but always watched them struggle uh, with money. Mm. So... Uh, didn't grow up in the church, didn't really go to church. Um, I was a pretty good kid, though. Um, never really got in any trouble. Um, you know, I got in trouble one time in, in middle school, and it was happened to be, it was junior high school. And it happened to be where my dad taught. And that time, I wasn't actually doing anything wrong. I was in math class. And uh, Mr. Osborne was right at the end of the class, and he goes, and the class was just unruly. And he goes, Glenn, go stand out in the hall. Called you out. Called me out. So I went out and stood out in the hall. 
And next thing you know, my dad's walking around the corner. And he just looks at me. <laughs> oh, no. And then I go back in the class, you know, for the very end of it. And that night, well, let's just say, we had a conversation. Mm-hmm. Just a conversation. <laughs> just a conversation. Yeah. <clears throat> like you just used to do in the early 80s. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so, and then, uh, you know, graduated school, went off to college. I was going to be a music teacher. And um, I guess somewhere around my, my junior year of college, I dropped out. Uh, didn't really want to do that anymore. Started working in uh, bars and uh, bouncing and managing clubs. And then uh, next thing you know, I'm managing a, a strip club. Wow. Yeah. So. Um, well, let's let's. Yeah. Go back to a couple questions there, because um, that's covered a lot of ground right there for sure, man. Um, but when with your parents' divorce, what what did that do to you? What, was there a fallout emotionally, or like having to choose one over the other at the time, or what? what how did that uh, transpire for you at that age? So uh, for me, it wasn't very hard. I guess uh, I have a little brother. It was probably a little harder for him. Um, we stayed with. Uh, our mom at the beginning of it, and we'd see, you know, mm-hmm. my dad on the weekends, she moved into a house that was like two miles down the road from where we were before they got divorced. Uh, and then married, you know, married somebody right away. Gotcha. Uh, and then, uh, you know, as things progressed a little bit, I wanted to stay with my dad. So we and my, both my brother and I ended up moving in with him. And then we would go back and forth between the two. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't really remember any any fallout from it. Uh, they they did it really well uh, as divorced parents. So you weren't mad or anything, or no, I no, uh, I was young enough where it was just you know just went on what happened. So yeah, and so what? Why do you think you decided to ultimately drop out of of college? Was it just the the, the path that you thought you were taking career wise, or just school sucks and just wasn't into it, or? Uh, probably all of that. Um, and I think it was, uh, probably going to school to be a teacher, you're going to make, you know, 30,000 or so. And I watched my dad struggle. So, uh, I wanted to make more. So you want to make more. And then ultimately you fast forward us to working at clubs or managing clubs, bouncing. And so I started out as bouncing and then I'd always, I've always been a, a leader of some sort and they, they saw me as, as a leader and moved me into a management job, asked me. Um, so I took the job as, as managing, and I managed and owned strip clubs for about 18 years. Did you go just from regular clubs to strip clubs, or what was that? How did you transition or just start doing that? So <clears throat> it was kind of a, a both and. Um, I, I was at uh, a place called the Sports Garden, I think it was, and then got asked to bounce one night at a, a strip club and went right into it. And, you know, within a month I was managing Pandora's box is what it was called. Wow. Is this in Virginia too? This is in West Virginia. West Virginia. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. So this is in West Virginia. I mean, are you wearing like eighties kind of tire with gold necklaces and like the <laughs> Miami vice look no, or what's no, going on? No, here? No. Uh, so I graduated high school in 89. Okay. So this would have been, you know, 90s looks, 91, okay. 92, somewhere around there. Gotcha. And I, I probably dressed the same now as I did back then. <laughs> <laughs> so you were looking good. 
All right, man. So, you know, that's where you stopped us was you're, you're managing strip clubs basically. And so yeah. I'm, I'm guessing you're seeing things that are probably not that, that great, either the way women are treated or how things are done in and out of, out of that. And, and the lifestyle that either you're living or these girls are living, like what, what are you seeing that, yeah, that maybe so, you were expecting and you didn't expect? Well, and then I should probably back up a little bit. I'd, I'd been married uh, before that. Okay. And I, I was a horrible husband and then even worse dad. Um, uh, when I got married, um, for the first couple of years, I was pretty good. Uh, that last year I was, um, I cheated on my wife. I lied to her all the time. Um, and she ended up getting pregnant that last year. And, and right after my son was born, uh, we got divorced. Mm. And um, I was horrible, horrible dad uh, through that. And uh, you were managing the, the club. So while, I started managing the club after that. After that. Okay. And the, the whole, yeah, the whole thing, um, it was just, uh, I was horrible. Uh, there aren't words that I can use on here that, to explain who I was and what I was then. Well, maybe you can't explain <clears throat> kind of how you were, but do you have an understanding, at least now, like maybe why you you were like that? Was there something that you were just going down the wrong path or like you weren't ready for it? Or I, 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 You know, I wish I knew what the answer was to that other than I, I didn't have uh, God in my life. Uh, it wasn't doing, uh, I wasn't surrounding myself with people who were doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. I was surrounding myself with the fun people. I thought were fun people, um, just doing all the wrong stuff, uh, for all the wrong reasons. Mm. Um, so <clears throat> yeah, so ended up getting divorced and, uh, about a year later, um, uh, my wife got married again, our ex-wife got married mm -hmm. again. And she asked if the, uh, the guy she was marrying could adopt my son. And I made the absolute best and absolute worst decision of my life when I agreed to it. Mm. Wow. How so? <laughs> well, I didn't want my son to see me doing what I was doing. Yeah. Um, so, and then, the, you know, the worst part of it was I wasn't able to be around my son. Right. Uh, and we'll get back to that uh, okay. in a little while. So we get back to uh, working in the strip clubs. Um, the, it's amazing what your normal can be. Right. Um, yeah. So you, I, I'm in there working in the strip club and let's say, uh, there were people who come in and want to sell drugs. They give me a kickback for selling drugs. And then after a while, they're like, well, why don't you just sell drugs? You can make more money. All right. So uh, that aspect of it kicked off along with managing the club. I was selling cocaine. And then like say girls wanted to make more money guys wanted more than what they could have there at the club. So then I ended up having girls working for me as escorts. So it was just building up the the bad mm -hmm. uh, business stuff. And, and I was in that for 
the better part of 17, 18 years wow. doing that without, yeah. without getting caught, uh, until when, so, uh, yeah, the sex was, was a commodity almost, uh, drugs were a, a commodity, uh, I wasn't really addicted to drugs. Mm-hmm. I did them. I did cocaine. I did a lot. Um, alcohol. I drank a lot. Uh, and it wasn't until I stopped until I really figured out what the whole problem was and why I was doing it. Um, I can remember when I started managing the clubs, I told my, my dad and his wife what I was doing. And then I backed it up with, you know, I don't force anybody to do anything. They come to me mm-hmm. and ask. If you could have seen the look on his face. It didn't was, go. Didn't, didn't go over well. Um, so, yeah. <clears throat> That's a long time. 17, 18 yeah. years. Yeah. Man, what? Got a lot of questions, but, but over that time, what? What did that period of time do to you as a person? Was, were you just, did you eventually, I mean, you said some really hard things were happening and selling girls. I mean, do you look back on it now and be like, man, I was just totally numb to my, my normal and what was happening? Did like, I just enjoy it? Was it the money that kept me doing it or the power or I just so, didn't know anything else yeah, to do? Yeah, it was the power. Um, you know, people get addicted, addicted to drugs, get right. addicted to alcohol, get addicted to porn or sex or whatever it may be. Mine was the power. I can make people do some of the most horrendous things you can even imagine for a, a gram of cocaine. Um, it, it, was, uh, it was the power that, that yeah. did it. Um, and, and I, I, now I know what the, one of the turning points was, um, I was living in Charleston and I hadn't talked to my parents for a while. Uh, and then I got a, a knock on my door. I was a police officer and he said, are you Glenn Paddock? And I, I said, yes. And he goes, you need to contact your dad immediately. Okay. So I called my dad and he ended up having cancer. He had mm-hmm. stage four, it was some sort of stomach cancer. So I called him and he told me, and I, I went home within two days, just left everything that I had there in Charleston and, and went. <clears throat> and then I, I basically, I helped care for him up until he passed away. And my brother and I were both there you know, when he passed. Uh, and we had repaired a lot of our relationship just through sitting and watching what was the Andy Griffith lawyer show, watching that, some other stuff, mm-hmm. just uh, watching TV and, and talking. And um, we, we had repaired our relationship fairly well. And then when he passed away, uh, they waited a, a few months before they read the will. Uh, and I'm pretty sure it was because they were afraid of what the reaction was going to be. So I'm sitting in the, the, uh, it was at the bank president's office, you know, small town, West Virginia. So we're sitting up in Denny's office and he's reading through the will and 
everything's going along and get to my little brother and they say what, what he's getting. And he goes, I realize I have another son, Glenn, but I do not recognize him or any more of his offspring. And you could see when they, when he said it, everybody in the room was, was waiting for my reaction. Mm -hmm. And knowing me, it was going to be volatile. I just sat there. And he only said a couple more things and it was over. Got up and I thanked Denny and I walked out. And that night I destroyed a whole bunch of stuff. And it just went on a path of destruction for years. Um, to the point where somebody would look at me wrong and I was knocking out your teeth. Really? You'd look at me wrong or say something wrong. I was snatching you up by your neck and taking you out the club or whatever. I wouldn't even let my bouncers do their jobs. I, w I would do it. Um, trying to numb the pain mm -hmm. with, uh, you know, I don't know if you know anything about cocaine or not. People usually do little bumps. I, you know, what I was doing was, were gangsters, stuff that would kill you. I should have been dead many times. Uh, so at any point during all of this, were you ever arrested, questioned by police for anything, or overdosed, got in the hospital? So there was no like nah. actual- No consequences for my actions. No consequences yeah. that would have yeah. other, set off other than lights. Other than not being able to see my son, which was another thing that was fueling the, the anger and the, just all the bad decisions. Um, so yeah. Um, Did you have anybody during any of that period that was like trying to help you or speak some sort of truth into your life, say, hey, this might not be the best way to live. Would you even entertain it or people not even come near you? People with never it? came to me with that. Um, so much so that uh, there towards the end, my friends bought me a doormat that said, welcome to hell. And that was my house. And I displayed it proudly. You know, I mean, that was it. It was sex, drugs, and rock and roll in the house. And it was rampant. Mm. Um, yeah. Uh, the, and what I can look at now is that it was, um, never really knew what love was because people were just around you because of what you would give them. Never really knew what joy was because you could never really enjoy what you had because everybody really wanted it. Never knew peace for the same reason because everybody wanted what you had. Uh, so, yeah. Man, well, at some point there had to be either <laughs> a low point that turned it around or some a voice that came in or what's, how did you get out of that lifestyle? Well, you would think it would have been the night I got arrested. I got arrested leaving, I was a general manager of the Gold Club. I got arrested, it was about 7.30, 8 o'clock in the morning. We had shut the club down, I was going home. Uh, got pulled over and they found some cocaine in my truck and uh, mm. got charged with uh, felony possession is what it ended up being after I'd paid my lawyer a ton of money and made a deal uh, with the state that uh, I pled guilty and they dropped it down to felony possession, First Offenders Act which meant if I did my probation instead of the 14 years in prison that I was signed up for, <laughs> that I was responsible for, uh, that it would come off my record. Mm. So I made that 
and uh, you would think I would have gone to see my my probation officer, but I didn't go see him at all. <laughs> I wanted to keep living the same lifestyle I was living, but I couldn't mm -hmm. because I'd been arrested, so I was hot. Right? Couldn't sell drugs to anybody. Couldn't didn't have any girls working for me because, again, I was hot. So I was going around collecting money from people that owed me money. And uh, got to one guy that owed me money, and he wouldn't open his door. So I kicked in his door, and I knew he was there. Kicked in his door and comes running out, and I'm beating him. And there's no doubt in my mind that I was beating and killing. I'm jackhammering his head into the floor. Just about that last shot, something grabs a hold of me and tosses me across the room. And nobody in the house with me and this guy. I'm looking around, ready to go to work on whoever it is, right? There's nobody there. So I go to get back on him. And I can get right to him, but I can't touch him. I back up and I'm really ready to go this time, right? I can get to him, but I couldn't touch him. And there's not Nobody, a not a person in the. So after a third time of trying, I, I walk out of his house in a daze, like what's going on? And I start walking. And I walk for a few blocks and I stop at a building that I've driven by probably a thousand times since I lived in Savannah and go inside. It was about five minutes to seven. And I go in and sit down. So the building was the old Savannah City Mission. Mm. And at seven o'clock every night, they have a service. You have to go to the service before you can eat. So I go in and sit down. This is on November 6, 2008. <laughs> At 7 o'clock, Pastor Robinson started preaching, and I couldn't tell you a word he said for those 45 minutes through all the tears and snot. Every tear was a layer of crud coming off. And just uh, the amazing feeling of love and joy and even peace through all of it in that 45 minutes of crying, just letting it all out. At the end of that, Pastor Robinson was standing in front of me and said, would anybody like to give their life to Christ? So that was, like I said, November 6, 2008. I leave there that night and I come back there in the morning. I knew that's where I needed to be. And they had a residential program for guys that were sick and tired of being sick and tired and mature in their misery. So I go back there and most of the guys, and I'm still friends with most of those guys. Uh, they're drug addicts and homeless and the whole nine yards that was there. So I go in, I go to talk to the chaplain and I had to wait for him actually. And when he got there, I went in the office and I, I said, uh, I'd like to be a part of this program. And he's looking at me because I look kind of like I look right now don't look like I'm homeless. I don't look like I'm strung out on drugs. I don't look like I'm supposed to be there. And he goes, this might not be the place for you. So after what felt like two hours of, of talking with him, I finally said, I don't know how to love God and I don't know how to let God love me. And he said, all right, go on over in the warehouse and work. I think I worked harder in those two days in the warehouse than I've probably ever worked in my life. Uh, he came over and he says, okay, you are a probationary member in this program, the Urban Training Institute. Fast forward a couple months, I'm on TV. It was cold. Um, the uh, TV station had come in and 
I was the one that, you know, just happened to be the one to tell them what was going on. And we had let guys sleep on the floor that night or the night before. And uh, so the next morning I'm working the front desk and the guy walks in, he's a probation officer. And we had probation officers come in all the time to talk to uh, homeless guys. Mm -hmm. So he goes, is your name Glenn Paddock? I just thought he saw me off TV the night before he goes, I have a warrant for your arrest, but I can't take you because I'm in my own vehicle. I am your probation officer who you've never met. <laughs> and he goes, it would look better for you if you went and turned yourself in. And I said, yes, sir. The old me would have been gone, right? Yeah. Two states over. I went in the back, got somebody to drive me to the jail and turned myself in. Was this from like, a lot of past things that you didn't follow up with or the, no, when it was, you were it beating was just, up the guy? Or? No, it was just from the, the cocaine okay. arrest. Okay. I never went to see my probation officer. Right. So I went in and uh, that was a year, almost a year to the date that uh, I had pled, pled guilty to it, but it never went to see him. Mm. So I went, I sat in, in jail for, for two months before uh, I got to go to court. Now, now pro my probation officer came in and saw me while I was in jail and he goes, you're the first one that's ever turned himself in. I see something good in you. And then I go in front of the judge and the executive director of the mission is there, Jim Lewis. He stands up for me. And my probation officer stands up for me in court. The judge goes, you know, I could give you your 14 years. I said, yes, sir. He goes, but these two men see something good in you, and so do I. I'm going to sentence you to finish out your time at the old Savannah City Mission, which was another 10 months in my program, uh -huh. and you get to keep your First Offenders Act. Holy cow. <laughs> but God, right? <clears throat> What are you feeling in that moment? I mean, were you thinking you're going in for? I, you know, I was prepared years? for whatever he was, he was going to do. Really, you had peace yeah, about going. I, I was okay with whatever. Uh, really, it's one of those. When I got saved, there was such a relief from all of my stuff. And, and when I say pile stuff on and pile stuff on and pile stuff on, and some of the most horrific things you can even imagine. I did worse than that. And that night that I got saved, it was kind of like through all the snot and tears, I got to slide that over mm -hmm. there. Uh, not that I don't ask for forgiveness daily mm -hmm. because I still do things that I remember. I, I still contact and, and ask forgiveness. But at that moment in time, I was, I was prepared for whatever I had to do. It, it wouldn't have mattered. Uh, so through tears, I, I I thanked the judge and I thanked my probation officer and I went back to the mission. Um, and within days, uh, I got a call from my, it was actually a Facebook message from my little brother saying my mom was, wasn't doing well. She was in the hospital. And then the next day I got a call saying that she had passed away mm. and I was on probation and, uh, these things didn't work so that I could go up for the funeral. And um, to this day, that still haunts me, not being able to be up there for uh, the funeral. 
a little twinge of anger started to come up and um i the the chaplain came to me asked me how i was doing i said i'm i'm a little angry he says rightly so i said well what do i do about it because i don't want to be the same guy who i used to be and he goes read philippians 4 okay so i read it and he asked me the next day how you feeling? I said, I'm, I'm still angry. And he said, did you read Philippians 4? I said, yes. He said, read it again. <laughs> so I read it again, and it's the same thing. He says, now read it until you're not. So I read it probably 100 times or more until it sank in. And, um, yeah. Uh, and... To this day, my little brother and I really don't have much of a relationship other than uh, uh, Christmas and birthdays and, mm -hmm. you know, how you doing? Great. I'm doing well, but no real dialogue. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think a lot of that has to do with, with not being there and helping him through that, that mess, not being able to be there for yeah. that. And, and it breaks my heart every day that I wasn't able to do that. And what was it like for just other people that knew you? I mean, whether it was <laughs> up north or down here, that like, who, you know, who is this guy? And what was it like for you when you, you did change? And like you said before, asking for forgiveness. Now there's two decades or more. I don't know how many yeah. worth of time and how many people are in there that you've hurt in some way sure. through your, your lifestyle. And yeah. how do you start to begin to deal with that or get forgiveness either from them or yourself or what was that process like with, well, with the new Glenn? So, uh, so when I graduated that program, the, uh, I went through and I graduated and then I started my senior year of college the next day and I ended up graduating from City Vision College with a bachelor's in urban ministry. Um, and then started working. I worked for the, the Old Spanish City Mission for a year, just trying to pay back for all mm -hmm. the help that they would mm -hmm. you know, given me and really given me my life back. And how old are you at this point? What stage of life are you in? So I, I got saved when I was 38, so it was 40. Okay. So uh, you're starting over at Yeah, at, at like 40. 40. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. What was your question again? I was just going to New Glenn and how you New Glenn with with people so, that you've heard and all that. Yeah, so that in that year that I was working for the old Savannah City Mission, I don't know if you remember Don Logano or not. He was a, a TV anchor for I think it was TOC WTOC, and they wanted to do a feature piece on someone from the old Savannah City Mission and um, the. Jim Lewis was was the executive director, and I was basically following in his shoes. My degree would allow me to go be an executive director of a mission. So, you know, he was mentoring me through that. And he says, I got the perfect guy. So they they do a news story on me. It was called From Pimp to Pastor. <laughs> and it was just, they led up to it for a week and a half, showing little snippets of, of my testimony. All the way up until the night before, until uh, the night that they did it. So I'd started dating my wife not much longer before that. 
So she got to see this. So she got she got to see, and, and she knew my yeah, story. Yeah. Um, but she had to tell her mom that they were going to talk about me and mention my name, have my picture on TV. And it was like a 10-minute deal on the TV. And then they, they did it live from the Old Swan City Mission when they did it. So, uh, but praise God, her mom loved me. And she saw the new Glenn, not the old Glenn. Yeah. And then with the uh, with that, everybody got to see who I was now just because of the news articles. And it was posted on Facebook everywhere. And um, I had people who used to work for me call me up and, you know, just the whole nine yards of, of is that really you? Have you really changed? And uh, I think there are some people even well, – that was 2008, 12 years later – still waiting for the other shoe to drop because of who I used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, you know, slowly but surely putting, writing some relationships that I had destroyed. And then some you just, uh, all you can do is, is ask for forgiveness and mm-hmm. leave it in their court. But yeah, and you mentioned, like, <clears throat> still asking God for forgiveness. And is that something that's a struggle even now where just – random memories or dreams or, you know, people come to your mind that have been hurt that take you back to there or trigger something in you, or are you able to fully just kind of go on with your life without being drawn back into like the emotional side of what, what your life was like? Yeah, no, um, I, I'm able now to just freely give it over. It's, you know, um, I went to uh, the first pivot conference and a men's conference. Yeah. Yeah. And Bill McGee did an amazing um, skit and it was, uh, he came out and he was carrying a bunch of suitcases and then there was a cross in the middle of the the thing and he was talking. And then the next thing you know, he sets down a, a bag in front of the cross and feeling pretty good. And he puts another bag down. It's feeling a lot lighter and he sets them all down. And he sets them all down with the last one. He said, man, I can hold on to this one. And then he starts walking around again. You know, I'm okay. I can probably grab this one. And the next thing you know, he's grabbed up all of his bags and then a couple more that were laying around the stage. Uh, And that really hit home. Uh, I don't ever want to grab up any more bags. Mm -hmm. So, No, it makes sense. And, you know, I'm interested too, just the relationship with your wife. Um, what what that was like for her to navigate here? Here's who I used to be. You might. I'm so, going to tell you some things. And yeah. Did, so when we first started dating, we would go out. There wasn't anywhere that I could go that people didn't know me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I managed clubs in the area for a long time. Um, I had thousands of dancers and even more people come into the clubs that knew me. Um, and then just the sheer fact that everybody knew who it was. Right. Uh, so we would go out to dinner and there would be, uh, you know, someone would come up and say, hey. Or one of the girls that used to work for me would, would message me on Facebook or come and see us there. And, you know, Morgan would ask where I knew him from. and She used to work for me. So <laughs> fast forward to us. Uh, figuring out what we wanted to do. We knew we weren't going to stay in Savannah. 
for that reason alone mm-hmm. um, when we got married. So we got married and she asked, where don't you want to work? Or she asked me where I wanted to live. And I'm like, I don't really care. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter to me. And she goes, is there anywhere where you don't want to live? And this is where I learned you never tell God what you don't want to do. I said, I don't want to live in Atlanta. Can't stand Atlanta. Well, two weeks later, we got an offer to work. And it was our only offer uh, to work at uh, a mission in Atlanta mm-hmm. to implement a program like I had just graduated from and graduated college to be able to do. Uh, it was at uh, Rescue Atlanta was the name of it. So we get up there and we're there for about a year. And um, it shuts, uh, we're there for about six months and it shuts down. It was a husband and wife that ran it and they uh, ended up in divorce and the, the mission shut down. So we, uh, we move into a $100 a month house uh, in not Buckhead, but Bankhead, which back at that time was the exact opposite uh, of Buckhead. So we, we're living there and, and uh, can't really afford to have heat on, uh, you know, bags of rice and beans and pasta, you know, just all the stuff. Uh, and then Dave Stewart uh, called us. I'm like, and this was right after there was a shooting at, a, at the fair. Why don't y'all come down and, and do your program in Savannah? So we uh, we come down and visit with Dave and and Phil Fincher was I think he was the, the outreach pastor at the time. So we come down, we meet with those two and. Uh, we through lots of uh, of tears on Morgan's side. We come back to Savannah because she is worried about being thrown back into mm-hmm. my old world. <clears throat> so much so that uh, there was a uh, and there still is a uh, nonprofit that goes in to the strip clubs and loves on the girls. Um, it's escaping me right now. Sunshine, the Sunshine Girls. Uh, and they wanted, uh, they had asked Morgan to, to help with that. And I, I think that was probably one of the, the main reasons why we were supposed to come back to Savannah was for that reason alone. Um, so through lots of prayer, uh, she ended up going to the clubs one night. It was one of the clubs that I managed. Hmm. <laughs> uh, and when I say lots of prayer, I'm talking like hundreds and hundreds of people praying. Uh, she went in and she couldn't picture me there and she thought she was going to go in and and uh, uh, she didn't know what to expect with the girls and, and what she saw was they were just mothers and daughters and wives and and, and got to love on them uh, and it probably fixed a bunch of holes in our relationship just from her being able to do that. That's so interesting. Yeah. Man. Wow. That's really, that's really incredible. And, you know, you, you mentioned at the beginning, I want to make sure we don't, don't miss it. You were talking about your, your son. I believe. Yeah. So uh, we haven't even gotten to that point yet. <laughs> so uh, I, on Monday nights, I have a, a, a Bible study called man cave Bible study. We meet around a group of men, meet around fire pit and talk about Jesus. Right. 
so I guess it was probably five, four, four or five years ago after one uh, man cave, I come inside and I look at my phone and there's a, my phone messenger is like, I have a message from Jacob Balico, who is my son. And the message is, hey dad, um, I set the phone down and walked around the house for a little bit and they didn't know what to do with that. So I sent him back a message and he said, can I call you? And I gave him my number. We talked that night and I, I apologized and he asked some really hard questions. But I gave him, you know, truthful answers. And mm -hmm. um, it started off with, you know, maybe talking once a month or whatever. And his mom was fully against it. I mean, didn't want any part of him having any part to do with me. Did she know that you had changed uh, at that point? Well, uh, probably not. Mm -hmm. um, maybe, I don't know. Um, but he, he kept in, uh, he, I let him lead that, lead on that. I didn't want to, and the whole reason why I hadn't contacted him is because I didn't want to hurt her I didn't want to do any damage to the relationship with Jake and, and the family. And the truly the only reason would for me contacting him before then would have been for me, not mm -hmm. for, for him. It would have been for me. And that's, I, I left that in, in God's hands. Uh, so over the next four years, we start talking more and more and, I've gone to see him. As a matter of fact, Friday afternoon, we're going up there and celebrate his birthday. He's going to be 24. Can't still can't believe I have a 24 year old. Um, but yeah, we we have uh, we talk just about every day on the phone, and uh, God has um, done amazing things. Mm. So, wow, which well, leads me kind of what I do now. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, let's talk about that in a second. But, you know, you just mentioned God and I'm, I'm interested now in the place that you're at now. When you look back at your childhood, you look back at your lifestyle, especially in the clubs and the drugs and the girls and and then get into that place where you, you know, kind of made that decision to change everything. What was or what do you think you're your view was on God or faith during all that time before that happened? Did you even acknowledge him or think anything of him or that he was real? Did, or didn't anything? think anything of him, but I, I was probably closer to being the devil for a lot of those years. Um, I was as evil as they came. Mm. Uh, not much evil than me uh, existed at that time. So, Wow. It's just, it's incredible. And even the, part of your story where you're you're going there and you're hurting this this guy he's okay right did he end up being yeah, okay he, yeah he okay. survived just making sure <laughs> he didn't die okay just making sure <laughs> but you know you're saying that you're going to hurt him and like you physically can't and something's i mean that to me it sounds like an out-of-body experience that you couldn't explain at the time you can barely explain it now it's yeah just like, it's had the, the literal only thing I can think is the Holy Spirit stopping me from, which is from from me stopping me from being me. Yeah, 
that's just, I mean, it's incredible. And, you know, you're at this place now where we're, we're talking about you're working for this nonprofit called the Dream Campaign. And I guess just briefly explain what, what the Dream Campaign is and who it targets and what, what you do. Yeah, so we are a mentoring program that uh, helps kids discover what it is they're passionate about, uh, help them develop as leaders, and then dream big for their future. You know, that's the, the nutshell of it. Um, and then with that, we have a, a program inside of it called the Toolbox, where we we give, uh, there's a Bible lesson that goes with the tool. They get a toolbox. They get a, a, a new tool each month. They learn how to use the tool. They make a project with the tool mm -hmm. that they can either take home with them or a community service project. Mm -hmm. But through those tools, they're getting, you know, they're, we're equipping them with skills that they will have for the rest of their life. And, and you're primarily working with young men, right? Well, we females. Too. We are we are literally from first grade to high school, twelfth grade in the Dream Campaign. Okay. Uh, now the toolbox is is mostly teens, mm -hmm. boys, and now girls. We have a okay. girls toolbox also. So man, you're you're working with young people. A lot of them, I'm sure, have difficult home lives, or maybe don't have yeah. the dad in the picture, or they do right. and just need need other yeah. men or good people in their lives and and here you are the worst of the worst back in the day the devil himself like you said and now you are mentoring and advising and teaching these youth about about god and to basically be everything that you weren't in in your former prior life and you know what what do you allow them to know about your past when they're mature enough in order to hear so when they're when they're old enough, I I, I tell them everything. Mm -hmm. um, I don't want them to go down the same road as I did. They don't have to hit the same walls that I did. Mm -hmm. You know, my, I've hit my face against that wall enough times where they they don't have to. They can move over and do something else stupid, but they don't have to keep doing the same things that mm -hmm. I did. Um, and I, I I know deep down in my heart that I do this because I'm trying to make up for uh, not being there for my son. Uh, not that I can ever make up for that, mm -hmm. uh, but still uh, trying to have an impact on these these young uh, men and women uh, and, and giving them skills that they will have for the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. Wow. And I know it's really rewarding, but what what is what is some of the hardest things that you you have to encounter now and you know now in this this current time with with youth and what what they go through that kind of breaks your heart for either it's the home situation or the neighborhood situation or just emotionally, like what, what are some of the things that you're having to fight against with them and kind of help them through? So when we, when we initially moved back to Savannah and moved into the house that we were in, um, which is a, another story altogether, um, the house that we lived in on 34th and Reynolds was actually a guy who used to come in to the clubs all the time. Mm. He saw a post one night on Facebook and then started blowing my phone up at four o'clock in the morning. I got a place for you to rent. I got a place for you to rent. And we ended up there. Wow. Um, so we went in and what we uh, originally wanted to do was work with teen boys, 15 and up. Mm -hmm. Well, they were already drug runners. They were already doing their thing and there were no 15 and up boys to work with. So we started working with fourth and fifth graders. Jeffrey. I don't know if you've ever met Jeffrey or not. 
but uh, Jeffrey was our, he was on our doorstep when we were going to move in. He goes, can I help you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and next thing you know, we're playing a thousand games of Candyland. And he's singing Andy Minio's in our city, screaming at the top of his lungs, going down the street. So, uh, yeah. So gangs were uh, one of the major things, so much so that I went and got certified as a gang intervention and prevention specialist. Oh, really? Um, Just because I wanted to have as much knowledge as I could and be able to help Mm -hmm. uh, as much as I could. And uh, our house ended up being called the safe house by the kids. We called it the, you know, the dream campaign house or whatever, the dream house. Mm But the, everybody in the neighborhood called it the safe house. And even the gang members would bring their little brothers and sisters over because they knew they'd be safe at our house because we didn't, we didn't let any mess go on. Mm-hmm. Um, we had uh, one girl uh, early in the morning come running up to our doorstep. Someone tried to abduct her. We'd never met that girl before, but she knew that our house was safe. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, the next thing you know, there's 40 police officers trying to find the guy. So. Wow. That's it's really incredible. And so when, again, when you, when you look back in the situations that you were in, I always love to end the podcast with, you know, what is, what is something somebody can do, like a tangible thing that they can do to, to help someone else, someone else out and we'll, we'll go from two different levels we'll do right. one with the, the type of youth you're working with yeah. now and in, in the dream campaign what somebody can do for that 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 target audience that you're helping but just for you personally what what you went through and you are in that kind of horrible lifestyle living living that life was there anything even looking back on that somebody could have done to just even just show you love and intervene or at any stage in that process were like, this helped. It I didn't change right away, but it 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 maybe helped a little bit. What can somebody even do? So I, I think, uh, especially for, for men, I think uh, having a guy that would have reached out and maybe had a talk with me, as scary as it would have been at that time, mm-hmm probably wouldn't have have done anything for me, but it would have shown that somebody actually cared that I was doing something wrong instead of everybody really wanting me to do something wrong. And then maybe over time you would eventually trust somebody that so the more the more that 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 guy or guys would have come to talk to me, the more maybe I would have uh, heard them. Yeah, maybe. Mm -hmm. Well I mean one of your big lines we always talk about is just just showing up. Yeah. So yeah, literally that's 99% of it is showing up mm-hmm. and be present while you're there. Yeah. Um, cool. I do counseling with guys now for multitudes of reasons, but most of them are drugs, alcohol, and porn. Mm-hmm. And um, literally is just being there to hear them talk and then interject because I lived that life. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. Okay, well, let's take it to the the youth that you're working with now in, in ways that whether people do it through the Dream Campaign and volunteer that way, but just even for somebody listening that they probably have some kid in elementary school or teen that's at a house with a single mom or has difficult home life or you just see them all the time and they look unhappy or depressed or 
you know, there, there's kids all around us that are that yeah. are hurting if you have your eyes open yeah. and you're in the right places. But from your experience, like how can somebody get involved in the type of things you're doing or just in a kid's life in general that, hey, this means a lot. It is just showing up. But how, how do you take that step to just show up? So one of the things that we did, and this isn't for everyone, we, we poured a basketball goal because we saw kids walking down the street. One, actually, one kid got hit because he was bouncing up a ball walking down the street. So we poured a basketball goal. And I, that's not for everyone to do. Mm-hmm. But it became the place where everybody played ball. Um, it could be going into your your area rec center or where they do after-school programs and going and read to them or going and help with math or whatever it is that you might be skilled at mm-hmm. or finding a, a program in the area wherever you are that does some things that, that you enjoy to do. Uh, don't ever do something that you, you aren't passionate about because it will show. And kids can be brutal. Mm-hmm. So, you know, always make sure that it's something that you want to do. Yeah. So, yeah, that's good advice, man. And I know we could probably <laughs> have <laughs> questions for the next three hours and talk about some of the stuff you've went through. But I think yeah. you've really painted that picture very well of what life was like and where you were and where you are now. And just really how incredible it is that a guy like you and how you describe yourself is now doing what you're doing right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's pretty amazing. As, and uh, for someone who gets to do that kind of work side by side with you, if you didn't tell me those things, I wouldn't have known about them. Or I wouldn't have found out because of who you are now. And and that's just really incredible that you've dedicated your life to to give back to help youth so that they don't go to that path or even near that path because of how destructive it can be for them and for all sorts of people around them. But it's, you know, it's amazing to see your life and where you're at right now. And it's, I appreciate you sharing that. I tell you, I I get blessed every day to be around the kids that we are. And and anybody who volunteers will say this, that you get more out of it than the kids do. And and that is, that holds true every day. Uh, I get blessed by these kids. I love doing it. Yep. Well, it shows, and I know the kids I've seen around you, they really appreciate it too. And, and uh, well, good stuff. So, I want to thank you for being here and sharing and being vulnerable with us and giving people hope too, you know? It's like that's a really dark place to come from, but to see where you're at now and giving other kids hope right now. I appreciate it. Appreciate it. Yep. But thank you for being here. Quinn, thanks for producing. City Church, thanks for hosting us. And this has been Neglected. We'll catch you next time. Peace. Thank you.